Hello, welcome to the Freedom from Anger podcast. I'm joined today with Phyllis Levitt. She's been a therapist for over 30 years. She's author of multiple books, A Light in the Darkness, Into the Fire, and she is currently about to release a new book, America in Therapy. Hello, Phyllis. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me here. Oh, no problem. I'm very excited to have you on here. I'm sure listeners can definitely learn a thing or two from your 30 plus years being a therapist. So any information you give will definitely be beneficial. But I'm really curious about your newest book coming out. You said it should be released here soon. America in Therapy. Or if I was to label my own book, it'd be America Not in Therapy. It's totally right. Why America needs to be in therapy when it's not. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I could start by just saying where the idea for the book came from. And actually, I had the idea many years ago and only recently put together, I had chapters and chapters written and I didn't know what to do with them. And finally, I got a really good editor and coach to work with me on reorganizing my book and making it very current. So the idea for my book came from, I'm, as you said, I've been a therapist for over 30 years and I was a client myself for many years initially. And that's what actually had me choose being a psychotherapist for my own career. Because Being in therapy myself really made such a huge difference in my life and in my understanding of the places where I was blocked, where I was frustrated, where I had negative opinions of myself, where I wasn't making healthy choices in my life. It it really helped me understand all of that. And what it came down to was that there were certain formative things in my own conditioning in my early years that were very painful and traumatic for me that I had buried and had no idea were influencing the way I was behaving as an adult and the way I was feeling as an adult. And once I realized that really deeply, I began to realize that, you know, I'm not alone. There are millions of people who are a mystery to themselves. They don't know why they're depressed. They don't know why they're anxious. They don't know why they have obsessions. They don't know why they're raging. They don't know why they can't make good relationships. They don't know why they don't have satisfying employment. They don't know why they have addictions. And and we go on being a mystery to ourselves until there's some like crack in the armor that helps us go down and see what some of the formative experiences were that set us up to not be fulfilled in life and sometimes have very destructive behaviors. And it's and it's understandable. And though Each person is completely unique and complex in their own psychological makeup. There are patterns that emerge, and that's why psychotherapy and psychology can be so effective, because we can start to see the patterns and start to identify some of the causative experiences and treat them the best we can, knowing, of course, that it's imperfect, that we try and try again, but that healing can really happen. And once I saw that, I realized that we play out our unresolved issues, we play out our strengths and our unresolved issues everywhere we go, whether it's in our intimate relationships with our children, at work, in our communities, and we play it out in our larger institutions, huge corporations and governmental departments. And in the highest reaches of government, people play out their unresolved issues. And so, I really began to see that what we're suffering from, there's so much anger, for instance, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit maybe more about anger than other issues, although I can talk about many just because of, you know, what your podcast is called, Freedom from Anger. And, and that's a focus that you're talking about. And anger is often the outer layer of a lot of other emotional disturbance underneath. Anger can be and can feel like a very powerful defense against fear, against violation, against depression, against high anxiety, against feelings of failure. It's it because anger has a certain power in it, it's often a leading emotion. And we're witnessing, you know, extreme anger erupting all over our country 
And I'm going to talk about America, even though we see this all over the world. We're seeing, you know, incredible outrage and, you know, demonstrations of hostility and anger and discrimination and outright violence in terms of mass shootings and assault on marginalized people. And so, you know, my point in writing the book, one of many, is that we could understand this better as a country and we could definitely address this epidemic of violence and abusive and destructive behaviors much better than we are if we allow ourselves to use what we've learned from the field of psychology to both understand what's happening and try to treat it on a much broader level than just the individual level. So that's my intro. Please feel free to jump in and pick up any threads that are interesting to you or ask any questions that you have. Well, you definitely covered a lot. And going back to what you said about anger, everybody uses the iceberg visualization. Anger is what you see above the surface, everything underneath. Yeah. That's what you have to work on. And yeah, you definitely see, I know just here in the past, I don't know, probably, probably three years, it just seems like when you go out into America, everybody's kind of on edge. I was trying to describe it one day. <laughs> to my wife and I said, I don't know, it's, you just get this feeling that just everybody is about to pop and just trying to figure out like, where does this come from now? Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer in therapy and I tell a lot of the people that I work with and just ask them this question. I said, can you imagine a world where everybody had to sit down for an hour, two hours and talk to a psychologist or a counselor mm -hmm. once a week? Do you think that would make the world a better place or a worse place? And they always say better place. I said, like, well, since if you know that, then why are you so resistant towards it? Surely you can, you can wedge out an hour, hour to two hours to try to better yourself because as the old cliche goes, you can't help nobody else unless you help yourself, take care of yourself. But we get caught up in all the hustle and bustle. Everybody's on the phone, social media, all the things going on in the world, and we don't really slow down to take time for ourselves. And I deal with a lot over the past 10 years, majority incarcerated individuals. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and th these are not bad people. That's right. And, and I always do the, or I try to, like the Myers-Briggs personality test. Mm -hmm. And you'd be amazed at the, probably the most prominent two personality types is caregiver and guardian. Wow. Wow. And, Fascinating. And I, yeah. And I asked him, I said, why do you, I said, well, if you're a caregiver and you're a guardian, I was like, what are you doing in jail? And they're like, I don't know. I said, do you think you might be putting other people's needs in front of your own and just putting yourself at risk? And you just kind of see that light bulb go off. They're like, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. You know, these are good people, but they put themselves dead last trying to do whatever they can to take care of everybody else. And they don't re really see, hey, I need to take care of me. It's not being selfish, it's taking care of self. I th I th you brought up so many good points. One of the things that I did a little bit of research on when I was writing my book was, was the criminal justice system and who's incarcerated and the statistics of prior child abuse among the incarcerated population are higher, way higher than the average population. So if you've been abused as a child, if you've been neglected as a child, if you've been mistreated in some kind of way where you didn't get any help and you didn't get any treatment. So for many people, they never got rescued from what happened. They just somehow stumbled out of the home and into the world with the wounds that they had sustained that are unhealed. And of course, some people play those out in a criminal way. Not everybody does, but many people do. And, and so we have to look at what happens to people that sets them up for a life of crime rather than just labeling them bad people or lock them up and throw away the key. There are things that set people up for dysfunctional behavior, whether it's criminal or otherwise. And that's one of the things that psychology does so well. You know, if someone comes to therapy and they're a rager and they're raging at people they love and they don't know why they're doing it and they can't stop, 
we don't just sit there and tell them they're bad people. We talk about where that came from. What happened to you that made you so angry? What happened? Something happened. A person's not born a rager. A little baby is not a rager. Something happens to a person where they're either harmed or they're powerless to, to help others who are being harmed or something is violating their rights in some way or their body in some way or they're prevented from getting their needs met, their appropriate needs met, like the need for love, the need for belonging, the need for connection, the need for safety, the need for peaceful conflict resolution. And I really emphasize that one because so many of us don't have access to a venue where our conflicts could be resolved without violence. So what are the antecedents to all that rage? And how do we heal some of that? Even if we can't heal what happened to you 20 years ago, we can help heal the part of you that is holding all that anger. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And so their anger keeps them defended against actually even getting help because underneath there's actually a lot of shame and a lot of fear for what might be uncovered if they let that defense go. So one of the one of the big things, and you and I were talking about this before we started the podcast, is how do we break through some of the stigmas around good therapy? Because it can help break the cycle of abuse. And we know that from years of experience, not just me, but therapists all over the world know this from their own experience, that the cycle of abuse can be broken. The cycle of rage can be broken. The cycle of self-harm can be broken. The cycle of addiction can be broken. They can, they can, there's help and healing for all of this. And again, you know, I don't want to say like Pollyanna, this is hard work. This is actually not for the faint of heart. Doing deep inner psychological healing work is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of great strength that a person is willing to face their own demons that they're willing to face whatever harm might have been done to them that created rage and alienation and all the other difficult emotions that they have. That it takes also great strength to face some of the things that we've done that hurt other people. That's part of healing too. So those are some of the stigmas that I would like to help break through in my book, that it takes courage, it takes great strength and for those people who have made that journey, the rewards are so well worth it, even for the painful moments that you have to go through or that you might go through, you might not, but that you might go through, the rewards on the other side are so worth it. And that's what I'd like to see for our country. We're stuck in a whole blame-shame cycle where our most powerful leaders are stigmatizing each other. They're blaming and shaming their opposition rather than sitting down and coming to the table and actually trying to work out their differences for the benefit of the larger population. And these are exactly the things that we expect good parents to do. We expect them to try to work out their problems with each other for the sake of their children, for the sake of each other's welfare, for the sake of creating harmony and the best conditions that people need to thrive and develop and express their greatest gifts and contributions in the world. And I'd like to see those principles coming to the highest offices and the highest institutions of power for the sake of all of us. Yeah, and it definitely starts in those high offices because when you look at, if you just look at the way alcohol and drug treatment is treated and viewed it is a shame. They're going off of something that was established many years ago, 28-day rehab. 28 days, you're barely even coming out of the fog. Right. And the, all, the insurance companies, this is all I'm going to pay for. No, 28 days, you're just getting started. And if 28 days works for some people, hey, more power to them. But the majority of people, especially if you're going through detox, Right. But a lot of people can't afford long-term treatment because it is expensive. I mean, a lot of these facilities are expensive. And if your insurance is only paying for 28 days, I mean, it's better than nothing. But right. I think there should be definitely, if you look at the opioid epidemic that's been going on, there should be 
billions of dollars flooded into to try to help people make those right. resources available because not everybody can afford a $5,000 28-day rehab. And a lot of the insurance companies are not, are not going to pay that. And that's probably on the cheap end for, for a lot of these places. My own personal opinion is three months minimal. That would be a good start. <laughs> really in-depth, three months rehab, but you're not going to find any insurance companies to pay for that. I worked in a couple abuse treatment program for a couple of years when I first got my degree. And we had come on, someone come and speak to us about the incidents or the, the high correspondence between early childhood abuse, and they were talking about sexual abuse, but there's lots of physical abuse as well that happens to children and sometimes both. The high incidence between untreated child abuse and addiction that they were, that this person was working in a treatment center and the, the correlation was very high, that there was a lot of untreated child abuse correlated directly with addiction. And I think we need to know that as a country, again, that people don't come by their difficulties for no reason. And yes, there are physiological reasons why some people are more addicted than others or why it's harder for them to deal with their addiction than others. But most treatment centers that I was familiar with at that time were dual diagnosis. So they were dealing with both the substance abuse itself and the underlying emotional issues. And I think we have to look at that as a country when we look at the people that we are so quick to blame for being, you know, why can't you just stop drinking? You know, why are you doing what you're doing? Why did you steal from your family to support your habit? As if the person is just, like I said, born bad. And start looking at the family systems, not just the individual family systems, which may be highly dysfunctional because many family systems in America today are, but also the larger family systems that contribute to addiction, for instance. Why, why are our billions of dollars going into building weapons that kill people rather than into the treatment that could heal people so that they wouldn't even want to be aggressive and murderous toward others in the first place? And these are huge questions for our country, just like they would be for a family. You, if a family was investing all of their resources in assault weapons instead of feeding their children and educating them and getting them health care, we would say they were mentally disturbed. We would say, what's wrong with that family? And I think we have to ask the same question of our country. We have billions of dollars in resources that we could actually invest in people, in helping heal the people that are already traumatized and suffering and help break the cycle of abuse so that we don't inherit another generation of victimized acting out children. Yeah. We talk about the, the trauma and the, the household. Just here recently, I work at a behavioral care center. It's mm -hmm. attached to the jail. So we get some of the inmates and we try to work with them. And this, this young girl came in. It wasn't her first first time there. She never was really successful. But to be there, you got to take your meds right. and all that. So she had a real strong aversion to meds and everything. So when she came back, she would take her meds, but she wouldn't let anybody like draw her blood or do a TB skin test. And you realize like, okay, she came from a household of IV drug users. Well, and it would take her quite a while to just be, you'd have to work with her quite a bit on the trauma to allow somebody to do that to her so she could actually be a part of the program. It's very, it's very sad, very sweet girl, but you definitely, you can definitely tell a lot of trauma from that. And it would take a while of just individual work to get her open to that. And that's just a just an example that, that popped up in my head. And like you said, we don't think about, we just look at, okay, you're using, stop. We don't like, why are you using? <laughs> right, right. And, and the same questions go for all the issues. Why do we have such massive drug addiction and alcohol addiction and food addiction and shopping addiction and gambling addiction and addictions to power? and addictions to sex in our country. Why do we have that? What is driving that level of addiction? And 
can we look underneath the surface at the family of America, the conditions in the family of America that are helping generate and accelerate that cycle of abuse and neglect that we're seeing instead of blaming our victims? So there are many, many, many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in our country today that are truly the victims of discrimination, of, you know, such low wages that they cannot support their families. They're victims of poverty. They're victims of discrimination. They're victims of gender bias. They're victims of religious bias. And they're suffering. And they're going to become symptomatic, just like you're, the woman you described. She's symptomatic. She can't let anybody touch her skin because it's traumatizing for her. She's not stupid. She's not being obstinate. She's having a trauma reaction to what happened to her. And, and, and many, many people all over the world and in our country are having severe trauma reactions to the traumas that they've sustained, whether they've become really violent themselves or they've become addicts or they've become so passive that anybody could control them or they've become highly anxious and they're paranoid or they become so depressed that they're non-functional and they don't take care of their children or whatever their symptoms are. And I think we need to shift our whole paradigm from blaming our victims to helping them. And that is a huge shift for our country. We're so invested right now in blaming the people who are the most symptomatic when really in the world of psychology and family therapy, we know without any doubt that the people who are most symptomatic in a family are the ones calling for help for the family. And they're called, you know, they're called the identified patient because they're usually the one most, most stigmatized and most labeled as mentally and emotionally disturbed. When in fact, their symptoms are saying, this ship is sinking and I'm the one screaming for help. Listen to me. Does that make sense from your experience? Oh yeah. I think that's a common misconception when it comes to therapy is that a lot of people think, okay, well, I go hang out with this person and they're going to tell me what to do. And that's not, and, and, it, and it's frustrating for them because I'm like, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Like you've got the answers. I'm just here to kind of facilitate you figuring those out for yourself because you know what's best for you. I, I'm not, I can't tell you what to do. <laughs> That'd be unethical. I can't do that. But I'm just here to assist you with connecting the dots. Right. Uh, that's the way I like to put it to them. I was like, we're going to talk about a lot of different things and hopefully you'll have some light bulb moments and you make the connection. And that's what I'm, what I'm here to do is kind of help guide you. I'm not here to tell you to do anything. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. But I think, you know, and one thing I'll add to what you're saying, and I totally agree, you know, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the interventions that psychology does so well is a lot of people come to therapy because they actually do want some direction different from what they've been listening to inside themselves. If what they've been listening to is a direct result of trauma, and let me sidestep this for a minute, because what I want to say that there are some wonderful tools in, in psychotherapy that really help distinguish what I'm going to say. And EMDR, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's one of the processes in therapy that's really good at this. It, it helps a person distinguish what knowledge will happen if they were sexually abused or beaten as a child or ostracized because they had dark skin or whatever happened to them left them believing things that were negative about themselves that aren't true. It's not true that someone is less worthy because they have darker skin or they're fat or they're you know overweight or whatever or that they didn't do well in school. It's not true that they're less worthy or unlovable or flawed or defective, but it feels true if that's the message they get from harmful emotional messages and, and, and actual violation of their body. We end up with negative beliefs about ourselves, and the best therapy helps undo the hold of those negative beliefs. So it's sort of like peeling back the layers of what happened because out of those negative beliefs, there isn't anybody I know or anybody, myself included, or anyone that I've worked with who out of those negative beliefs didn't start to make some choices in life that were not functional, that were not healthy for them. 
whether it's being attracted to people who are like the people who hurt them in the first place or becoming so submissive that they can't stand up for themselves in harmful situations or they turn toward addiction or rage or depression or they abandon their own children or whatever happens to them that it comes out of that negative belief structure that hasn't been healed and the coping mechanisms that get developed that a person develops because we just try to survive the best we can. So if sinking into depression and isolation was the best that anyone could come up to to survive a horrible family environment, that's what they did. And chances are they're going to continue to do that once they leave home, just like rage or addiction or anxiety. Or it could be people-pleasing. It could be becoming an ultimate people-pleaser. The only way I learned how to survive was to you know, do for everybody else what they wanted and forget about myself because that's actually how I learned to survive, maybe. And then I keep doing that with partners who are only too happy to have me be the pleaser and they be in control. So we look at these patterns of the negative belief structure. And once you start to peel back those layers through some wonderfully healing therapeutic relationship with good tools, then you uncover the part of yourself that actually didn't absorb those negative beliefs, the part that was there before anything happened to you. I call it the essential self. I believe we all have that essential self. And healing takes place when some of those layers are peeled back and you can connect to your own essential self and your own essential goodness, which I believe every person is born with. So it's directive in that way. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm guiding you down a healing path, just like a doctor would do. You know, you come to me with, you know, your liver is not functioning right. I'm going to tell you what you probably need to do diet-wise and medication-wise and even surgery-wise. You can do it or not, but I'm telling you that's my experience of what will help that part of your body heal. And for, for therapy, it's this is my experience of if you come with me down this road, I think that healing from some of what you're suffering from on an emotional and behavioral level can also heal. Does that fit with what you're saying? Definitely. If I had a nickel for every time somebody comes into a alcohol or drug class or group and be like, all right, tell me what to do, how to stop. I'm like, man, if I had that, I'd be a millionaire. Right. I, I just like step one, step two, step three, I put out a book and the rest be history. It doesn't work like that. I said, each individual is different. <laughs> There's so much going on with each individual. I, I don't know what's going to help you stop. That, that's, that's something you got to figure out. I, I don't have the answer. Sorry. <laughs> it isn't like that. It really is a road. It's a journey. It's a process. And I just want to reiterate what I said earlier. It takes great courage. It takes perseverance. It takes inner strength. And and the other thing that's so important to know, and I, I'm sure you experience this with the people that you work with, is, you know, we're not meant to make that journey alone. We made the, the first journey alone through the minefield of whatever we suffered as children. We did that alone with no help, perhaps. And Part of healing is that you don't do it alone. You have support, whether it's from a therapist or a counselor or a group or a book that somebody wrote, you know, that describes their own healing journey that gives you hope. Wherever you find it, we need each other to make this journey. And, and that really relates to part of what I'm saying about America in therapy, that we need each other to heal. This isn't, a, this isn't about opposing forces. We need to find each other in collaboration to heal from our rage, from our violence, from our mistreatment, and from our suffering. Yeah, it's the first step in AA. We realize that, hey, I'm powerless. And looking at it from a guy's perspective, oh, I'll just take offense to that. I said, no, it's not saying you're weak. It's That's saying, right. hey, this has not been working. I need help. Right. So I can't do this alone. So I'm, I'm here for help. So, and people just totally misconstrued, like, oh, I'm not powerless. I was like, you know, you're just saying you need, you need help. You can't do it alone. And <laughs> you really have to kind of hammer that with them. Totally. And, you know, I think that's part of the mindset, that shift that we need so desperately in this country, because most of us have no problem going to an auto mechanic when our car doesn't work or a doctor when we're feeling sick or the computer technician when our computer crashes. We have no problem asking for help. 
from experts of all kinds, except when it comes to mental health. And that's where the stigma around it being associated with weakness, or I should be able to do this on my own. What's wrong with me that I can't figure it out? Or I just don't want to look like I need anyone. That's where that stigma really needs to be broken because what we're suffering from on a large, large scale, and I say this all the time, we're not actually suffering from our ideological differences. We think we are, and we've been conditioned, and we're being told that that's what's going on, that the left and the right are in a war and somebody's got to win. No, we're suffering from the mental and emotional state of mind that would have us attack each other that way regardless of what our differing beliefs are. Couples come to therapy with very different, you know, views on child rearing, on what they want from, you know, how they deal with money, how they deal with their household, what they want out of their intimate relationship. Most people have great differences and they can work them out when they're committed to their relationship, when they're committed to returning to love, when they wanted to be safe in their household, when they want to love each other and be loved. We can work these things out. We don't sit with a couple and say, your ideological differences, you know, let's see who's right and who's wrong. No, we try to help people come to the table and come to agreement and build empathy for each other's point of view and maybe some of the conditioning elements that got them to their extreme points of view. And these are the things we can bring to our country and that we desperately need in our country. Yeah, it goes back to just our whole socialization especially as men you gotta be tough you can't show no weakness you gotta just figure it out you gotta be everything for everyone i do think that mentality is starting to change with some of the younger mm-hmm. generations mm-hmm. and i definitely wanted to get your opinion on the online therapy like better help i know that I like to listen to podcasts and I know that they advertise a lot. And I'm just wondering if that would have a, it can't hurt, but I wonder if that would have a more positive outcome for the younger generations who are more tech savvy and more open to doing a Zoom session or on a phone. I think a lot of people are going in that direction mm-hmm. and just removing the barrier of, hey, I got to drive somewhere. That's a huge step. And if I could do it in the privacy of my home and keep it secret because don't want nobody to know that stigma, maybe that, do you think that would help people? I think it's a great thing. I mean, I think COVID really picked that off big time. I think some people already did online Zoom sessions with therapists who, if they found someone like in a different state that they wanted to work with. But I think COVID really kicked that into high gear. And, and I know for myself, I, I was practicing in Santa Fe, New Mexico for many, many years. That's where I live. And I moved up to Taos. And when I moved up to Taos, I came back for a while and did some in-person sessions and then did some Zoom sessions. And then when COVID kicked in, I only did Zoom sessions. And I didn't find that there was anything lost in doing Zoom. And I do think you know, and it was a necessity during COVID because we weren't going to meet with people in person. And and, I, and what I think is that it is really nice to be in the room with a person and kind of feel them and look into their eyes and get that vibe. I definitely think there's there's something wonderful about that. But if that's not available, I think doing therapy online is just totally fine. And if it makes it more available to many more people and it makes it feel safer or more private, great. You know, we are into technology and, and, and really I have done very, very powerful sessions with people over Zoom. So I think it's really, it's not, it's not even so much the modality, it's the relationship. It's, it's finding a therapist that actually cares that you get better. Someone who's rooting for you and has some skills to help you peel back that layer those layers that covered up your essential self and your essential goodness and your essential gifts and talents and all the assets that you came into this world with, someone who believes that that is there to be uncovered and is committed to working with you to peel back those layers and help you find your own love for yourself and your own care for yourself 
and, and hang with you in that process. That's what's important. It's the relationship that's important. And it's whatever great tools a therapist might use to help you get there. But I cannot emphasize enough that part of good therapy is really feeling like you have someone working with you that actually is in your corner, that is rooting for you to come out the other side of whatever darkness and suffering have plagued, plagued you. Yeah, and I'd say 90% of it is just having a rapport with somebody. And I try to tell people that. But it's like finding a good carpenter or a good mechanic. You're probably going to go through a couple before you find one that you'd like. Right. And a lot of people, they might have a bad experience. Maybe they're working with a, somebody that was still in school because they were cheaper. No offense to them, but hey, everybody's got to start somewhere. But it's funny, there's a comedian and he was talking about, he said, yeah, I decided to do some therapy and I went for the cheapest option. And he's like, pay full price, pay full price. Because <laughs> he got like an intern or something. But uh, but yeah, it's building that rapport, finding somebody that you click with. Yeah. You know, it, could, it could take several, several attempts. It could. And it's worth it. Like you're saying, it's worth it when you find the right person and you know when you do. Because you want to go back, you know, because there's something there, even if you have great resistance to uncovering some of your memories or talking about things you did that you're not proud of, even if you have that great resistance with the right therapist, with the right person, there's a, a feeling of safety and a feeling of not being judged for any of it that is so compelling and it speaks to that core self that really wants healing. So, yes, I totally agree with that. You know, keep going until you find the right person. Yeah, and just kind of circle back to the, the online thing. That's how we got started was COVID. And me and my associate, we were just kind of sitting around. And we weren't able to meet with people, weren't able to work with people. And it was like, no offense to a lot of people, but when it comes to anger management and behavioral health education classes... That's not the moneymaker. That's kind of pushed off to the side. We'll focus on this other stuff. And I said, we could do this a heck of a lot better. And let's take it virtual. Let's try to reach out there to the people that are stuck in their houses and frustrated. And we've been able to work with quite a few people in Hawaii, Canada, Philadelphia, <laughs> kind of all over the map. And I wish we could reach more. Yeah, we've had definitely good sessions here recently. I thought it was going to be my toughest session with the individual. He was 80, 80 81, 81. I said, okay, this is an 81-year-old Vietnam vet. This is going to be tough. And at the end, it, it made me feel good. He's like, he's like, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed talking to you. Good. I was just like, wow. I said, I thought it was going to be a struggle and turned out we, we both enjoyed it. And it goes back to, don't make those assumptions, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think the online thing is, that's definitely here to stay. Yeah. Things like that. What are we connected to? That's the bottom line because that's actually the injury in the first place. There was some break in the way that we were connected and bonded to in our families or in our communities, in our country, you know? I mean, I've had so many clients who were discriminated against as children on the playground for the color of their skin, for the weight, for how they didn't accomplish well in school, for being a different religion or their gender. And that is a serious injury that I don't think we necessarily take seriously. We need, we're wired for love. Science shows that. We're wired for love and connection. And when the break in connection and bonding happens early, and especially if it happens with your caregivers, the people you depend on the most, it's a severe trauma to the psyche, even if it doesn't look like, you know, a gaping wound on the outside, even if a person looks like they're coping well, because many people do look like they're coping well and suffering enormously on the inside. So we, we have to factor that in. So if you can connect to somebody on a crisis line, on a Zoom session, if that's really what's happening, that somebody is conveying to you through their voice, through their eyes, through their words, that they care about you and they're going to hang in with you, it's already way better than not. Way, way better than not. Yeah, that need for love and belonging, it's huge. We are social creatures. 
Yeah. We can't get around that. A lot of people have the mentality that, oh, I can just be completely alone. And I think it was Aristotle that says, a man that can live in complete solitude is either a wild beast or a god. And Mostly like, not a god. Yeah, I always say, like, none of us are gods and I don't see anybody with a tail. And I always use the example with Tom Hanks and Castaway. Oh. I said, what did he do? Well, he created Wilson. That's right. He, he had exactly. to have something to connect to. I said, that's just how Beautiful. we're wired. So true. And I think we need to know that as a country because we sort of have an image of ourselves as a lone wolf country. We're like the top, we think we're top of the food chain somehow now internationally. And it's not true. We need everyone in this world. We need, we rely for clean air, clean water, our food supply, our technologies. We rely for the earth to be habitable on everyone participating in making the earth habitable. And it's illusion. It's an illusion that we can do it on our own, just like it is for the individual. It's an illusion that we can just be an isolate and make it. We wouldn't have food. We wouldn't have our technologies. We wouldn't have a car. We wouldn't have gas. We wouldn't have a repairman. We wouldn't have anything if it weren't for all the billions of people doing all their different parts all over the world. And so there's no shame in being dependent. And I think that's part of this paradigm that needs to shift. There's no shame in being dependent. We are dependent. It's a fact. And what we want to embrace as adults is that we are interdependent. You need me and I need you. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. If I can need you safely and successfully, and you can need me safely and successfully, we have a great relationship. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Let's see here. There's so many different ways I want to go. Oh, as far as like different modalities in your therapy, I'm sure you use multiple as everybody does. And a lot of people use them and they don't know they're using them. The more you learn about them, like, oh, I've done that. I've done that. With my clientele, I, I find that, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy tends to work well. I'm definitely a fan of Albert Ellis is REBT is definitely a huge, uh, I say he's the grandfather of CBT and some people will argue with me with that. I'm like, I'm like, look at the dates. He came out with it in the fifties. Beck came out with it later. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I'm a huge, huge fans of challenging beliefs, challenging the way we think. And with a lot of people that I've worked with challenging things that they were taught by certain people challenging their own personal beliefs. That is the toughest thing for them to do. Well, if my dad told me this, then it's true. I should never challenge it. Even though I keep getting negative results, by having this way of thinking, having this belief. And going back when you talk about when we're, when we're trapped in depression or, or whatever, we get comfortable. We get used to that feeling and to step out and not feel that way. Well, this is weird. I need to go back. It's the same with a lot of people when they get sober. It's foreign to them the way they feel or if they actually get on their medication that they should be on. This is weird. I don't like this feeling. It's not normal. And I, I want to go back and stop taking my medications or start using again. But challenging those beliefs, that's usually my biggest obstacle with people that I work with because I mean man we we've had these beliefs for so long and we don't want to let them go and if you have these unrealistic beliefs these unrational beliefs that Dr. Ellis would say if you live in a world of absolutes I love his quote there's three musts that hold us back I must do well you must treat me well and the world must be easy right. so if Locked. you're living in if you're living in that world <laughs> Those must should always never all those absolutes. You're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Everyone, everyone must treat me the way I want to be treated. Good luck. I think you're talking about is the black and white thinking, mm -hmm. either this or it's that. And I think that that's not psychological maturity, you know. But a lot of us grow up that way. This is what's good and this is what's bad, and there's no gray in between. No meeting of the mind somewhere else. There's no empathy that can bridge the worlds. And it creates this vast polarization, whether it's you're polarized with your partner or your boss or your child, or you have parties polarized with each other and you have religions polarized and you have 
economic groups polarized. And then they're just, you know, one is right and one is wrong. And, you know, in the world of psychology, we know that no one wins that kind of power struggle. And the reason why is you can overcome somebody. You can conquer them. You can beat them to a pulp and they have been suppressed by you. But you have not one relationship. You have not one cooperation. You have not one mutuality or safety. And on the larger scales, that's really true. Because when people are conquered and suppressed, ultimately they end up rising up and doing often doing what was done to them, whether that's on an individual level, you know, large communities and nations on the level of that of that scale. And so what works is working it out. And it just seems like it's so hard to get that through to people because we have been trained exactly the way you said that to believe that X is right or X is good and X is evil and, you know, the other is evil. And so it's just a perpetual war and we're suffering from war all over the world. And who dies? Whose lives are destroyed? Whose towns and villages are destroyed? Whose way of life is destroyed? Millions of innocent people, children, babies, people who have nothing to do with the conflict that people in power have engaged in. And it's just, it's, it's just beyond tragic. It's happening right now. Yeah. Life is, it's not black and white. It's a lot of gray. A lot of gray. Uh, we, we pretty much live kind of in that gray and you definitely see, I mean, you certainly see it on the political spectrum, but you also see it in different areas. It's just that, that black or white thinking, it's my way or the highway. If you think different than me, then you're bad. I must punish you. And I've been guilty of that in my past, but as I've matured and, and learned, you just, you're not going to change somebody's mind. It doesn't matter if you think I've put together all these facts and I've got this, I, I'm going to present you this report to show you that you're wrong. Well, they can read it all day long. You're not going to change their belief system, what they believe in. The example I always use, if I'm in class, I'll stand, I'll look at a chair, and I'll ask somebody, I said, how many legs are on that chair? And they'll say four. Because it's automatic. There's four legs. I said, well, from where I'm standing, I see three. And they look at me funny, and they go, no, no, there's four. I only see three. From where I'm standing, I only see three. So try to make me believe that there's four. Yeah. Yeah. I love you're that. Not, you're not going to change it. Same thing with like, political parties. Hey, this is my team. This is my tribe. This is my flag. If you're on the opposite team, you're bad, but we have to come together. We have to agree on something or what's the point. We might as well have a king or a dictator or something. If no, nobody else is going to get along and do anything, then who's calling the shots? The people that see four legs, they actually see four legs. What they want to be able to do is say, could you come around and look from my point of view? Because I see four. Could Maybe if you come and stand where I am, you'll see four. And that's what we need to do with each other. Can you come over here and see from my point of view? And of course, there are some very extreme points of view that you know, I don't know that I'm going to go over to someone's corner and see the point of view where I believe that a certain population should be wiped out. I'm probably not going to ever agree with that. But what one of the things that we've learned so much in the field of psychology is that if it's that polarized in such a way that is so destructive, then you what you want to do is help people get away from the, the surface of that great divide and go down deep. What fueled that point of view? If you really believe that this population should be off the face of the earth, let's look deeper than that. What happened to you? What did you learn? What were you were told about those people? How did that affect your life? Are you afraid of that happening to you? You know, we have the tools to get underneath that kind of really entrenched black and white, good and evil thinking and it really is in, in the interest of the survival of the human race that we do that because we have nuclear weapons that can wipe us out if we get committed to resolving thinking or resolving, of course, it's an illusion, any kind of conflict that way. That's the end of us. 
Yeah, and it definitely speaks a lot to back in the eighties, the, the whole mutual destruction, make everybody happy, so everybody have enough to wipe out everybody. So that just says a lot about our mentality. <laughs> it does it does everything about our mentality? That's oh the point, God. right? <laughs> yeah, man. All right, well, uh, I could definitely talk to you for hours. You definitely know your stuff. I'm looking forward to picking up a copy of American Therapy. I think. Everybody can benefit from a little therapy. At least give it a try, depending <laughs> on where you work. There's a, a lot of EAS programs that can hook you up with a counselor, a therapist. In case you're going through something, it might save your job, might save your marriage, might save your life. You don't ever know. So definitely check out her book and... Thanks for coming on here, Phyllis, and uh, maybe we can talk again in the future and go in a different direction. I would be definitely open to that. That's for sure. I would just love that. And I, it's okay. I'd like, love to invite your listeners to go on my website, which is just my name, www.phyllislevitt.com. It's P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-L-E-A-V-I-T-T. And sign in for my newsletter because it's on the newsletter that I will let you know when my book will become available. And you so I, and and also I'll let you know when I have a release date so that yeah and then I will be very happy to send you your own copy so I appreciate that but uh, typically I go out and buy them you've put in the work yeah I don't want you giving away something you've worked hard on so you can get your nickel or whatever from Amazon I'm sure it's probably great much unfortunately <laughs> right exactly <laughs> exactly yeah thank you so much I'd be very happy to come back. In the future, I can let you personally know when my book is ready to be released, and maybe we can schedule something around that time if that works for you. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Just just let me know. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Hey. All right. That was our interview with Phyllis Levitt. Hopefully you enjoyed and learned something about therapy. As of August 13th, her new book, America in Therapy has not been released yet, but her other two books, like I said earlier in the podcast, they are available on Amazon. I'll put a link to those in the description. If you'd like any of our services, please visit our website, freedomanger.com. We have a whole list of various behavioral health education classes. Just contact me on there. Email is usually the easiest way to get hold of me. If you know of uh, any guest that you would like for us to interview, please let us know. And until next time, as always, stay safe.